And tonight, straight from the source, breaking news as Trump's longtime money man, Alan Weisselberg, is now in talks to plead guilty again, this time for allegedly lying on the witness stand at Trump's civil fraud trial. In another landmark trial that we watched today, the mother of the Michigan school shooter, Ethan Crumbly, took the stand in her own defense. She says she didn't know that her son was a danger, despite the many warning signs. And a mea culpa from the Pentagon as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin faced reporters for the first time since his secretive hospital stay, apologizing for not telling the president, saying, quote, I did not handle this right. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the man who spent decades helping run Donald Trump's family business, Alan Weisselberg, could be on the verge of pleading guilty for the second time, this time to a perjury charge, we are told. The 76-year-old was the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization for decades. He went to jail at Rikers for about 100 days last year. That was for his role in running a 15-year tax fraud scheme at the Trump Organization. Now, tonight, there is new reporting from The New York Times and confirmed by CNN that Weisselberg is in talks to potentially plead guilty to a perjury charge, this time related to Trump's civil fraud trial, where he, Alan Weisselberg, would have to admit that he lied on the stand during his own testimony. The timing here is also key as we are learning more about this new reporting, because right now we're waiting on the judge in this case to decide what the penalty is, essentially how much Donald Trump owes. A reminder, the attorney general in the closing arguments asked for north of $370 million dollars and is a ruling that could threaten Trump's entire real estate empire. I'm joined tonight by the senior editor at Forbes, Dan Alexander, who is the guest on this story because it was his reporting that exposed Weisselberg's alleged lies under oath on the stand. And Dan, when you look at this, and we don't know, I should note, which statement exactly it is that that could potentially go towards this perjury charge if he does plead guilty here, but you noted in your reporting that There were emails and notes from him that are believed to be at the center of this. What did you pick up on and what you believed that he lied about as he was kind of trying to distance himself from Trump's financial statements? Yeah, so remember the trial here was about Trump lying about his net worth. And one of the key examples of that is that Trump was claiming that his penthouse was 30,000 square feet when in fact it was 10,996 square feet. And Alan Weisselberg was on the stand and was trying to explain that he really had nothing to do with this. And as he was making that claim, it was obvious to me that he was lying. Uh, I went back through our notes and could track years of conversations that he had had with our reporters where he was really focused on the penthouse, uh, where he was trying to claim that it was 30,000 square feet or even 33,000 square feet. I think at one point Donald Trump had it. Uh, and that he was trying to claim that it was wildly overvalued. So this is clear documented stuff that you can say, you know, he's claiming one number, the documents show another number, and he was lying. You know, you noted in that story that you had documents that prosecutors didn't. Did you hear from their office after that? Uh, So their office did uh, go back and look through documents uh, with the Trump organization. They tried to do an additional sort of forensic look, and they put some paperwork in the docket about that. Uh, They did not uh, come after us or anything, um, but everything that we have 
is out there. You know, we've released tapes of Trump lying about the size of his penthouse. We've put out the notes of Weisselberg's conversations over the years. Uh, all of this stuff has all been laid out and is very clear. It's a remarkable piece of journalism. Dan Alexander, thank you for that. And for more on this breaking story, we have former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig here as well. And Ellie, you heard what Dan said there. I mean, this was a, a groundbreaking article that, yeah. that pretty flatly stated that they believed Alan Weisselberg had lied. Uh, all of this is coming as Judge Engron has not decided yet. Yeah. He said by end of January, obviously that was yesterday, wasn't definitive, but but could that play a role in why we haven't heard from him yet? Absolutely. If I'm in Judge Angoran's position here and getting ready to issue a big verdict and ruling, and now I hear this, and now we've all heard it, that one of the key witnesses committed perjury in front of me, I slam on the brakes and I say, I'm not going to rule until I know the specifics of this. Now, I think it's likely the judge probably discredited Alan Weisselberg's testimony anyway, because it was contradicted by so many of the facts, as Dan just laid out. But you have to know this as a judge. If you're going to issue a ruling, and if it turns out Weisselberg lied, that's going to harm the Trump organization when it comes time for the verdict. How could it bode for Donald Trump himself? Uh, it's a problem for Donald Trump because he's going to be on the receiving end of this verdict. It is important, though, there's an important detail in the reporting that Weisselberg's deal that he's working on or towards with prosecutors does not necessarily involve Alan Weisselberg cooperating against Donald Trump. And that doesn't surprise me. This guy is not in position to cooperate. I've, I've cooperated some really bad guys. But the problem is when you have an inveterate liar, multiple times convicted if he takes this plea, you can't put that person on the stand and ask a jury well, to believe him. And also, when we talk, I mean, Alan Weisselberg, fiercely loyal to Donald Trump, I yes. should know. But, but I think one thing we forget about, which the New York Times noted tonight, is that he got a $2 million severance package that required him not to cooperate with any law enforcement investigation unless he was legally required. That was stunning to me. I, I've never heard of such a thing. That's, I don't think that's enforceable to say you won't cooperate with law enforcement. I mean, it certainly undermines what prosecutors are trying to do. I mean, unless legally required, I guess that could mean a subpoena for trial or anything. But that's a shocking detail to put into a severance agreement in addition to the amount. So they're clearly, Trump and his people are trying to keep Weisselberg in the fold here, I think, because they're worried about him flipping. Yeah, and I should note, he has not actually agreed to this right. yet. He's just in talks to potentially do so. It could fall apart. We've seen it happen with other plea deals. Ellie Witness, uh, or Ellie Honig, thank you. Ellie Witness. Witness, too, if I saw something. <laughs> he would be a great witness <laughs> on the you. stand. I do want to turn now to conservative attorney and one of Donald Trump's fiercest critics, who anyone who watches The Source would know, George Conway, is here. George, I mean, if this does come to fruition for Alan Weisselberg, the theme here would be, in both guilty pleas, that he was lying on Donald Trump's behalf, would it not? Yes, and, and it's actually not surprising because that's what Donald Trump does to people. I mean, we've seen numerous circumstances where Trump has gotten people to lie or obstruct justice or perform illegal acts um, to protect him, even sometimes when he hasn't even asked them to do it. They understand what he wants them to do. I mean, you see all these people who were indicted, including his own chief of staff at the White House in, in, in Georgia. We've seen Michael Cohen. We've seen Weisselberg previously. We, it's just a, Donald Trump is just a cloud of deception. And he is he, he creates a culture of lying and deception and illegality wherever he goes. And if you are associated with him, you have to be very, very careful. You're taking a risk. I mean, there are lawyers who, who are, are, are losing their licenses or threatening, are being threatened with losing their licenses for defending him. And it just, it, it never, ever stops with him. He but asks, he expects people to do 
illegal things for him. Here's what I'm confused by, which is Alan Weisselberg was in jail for 100 days in yeah. Rikers you know, just one year ago. He went at the beginning of 2023. I mean, he testified on the stand after that. If there were emails and documents to back up, you know, or to contradict what he was saying, why would he lie? It's just beyond me. I, I, I think that some... I. He's doing it because he's wanting, he wants to protect his boss or he doesn't want his boss to get mad at him. He doesn't want retribution from his boss. I mean, it's, these are, you know, the people who work for Donald Trump are kind of like um, abused family members in some ways. They, 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 they shudder at the thought of displeasing him. They're afraid of retaliation and they instinctively end up doing the wrong thing because that's what Donald Trump expects them to do. The district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, may be the only person to bring a, a case against Trump this year. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with the other indictments, but we know that Trump's team is focused on slowing them down. Could could something like this strengthen his hand, Bragg's hand, going into that trial? I think indirectly. I mean, this does not directly impact the charges that are involved in the in the case that uh, D.A. Bragg has brought. That's the, it's basically the falsification of documents relating to the hush money that Donald Trump paid through Michael Cohen to uh, Stormy Daniels, the porn star. Uh, so this doesn't directly relate to that, but I think it's a very, very important warning to any witness who's called to testify in that case on either side that they better not lie, because if they lie, then, you know, they could end up like Weisselberg at Rikers or someplace unpleasant like that. Yeah, it's a remarkable development in yeah. this story. George Conway, thank you for that. Ellie, I mean, as we just, we don't know what's going to happen here with this and whether or not he's taking it, but but big picture, how do you see it? Well, I think George makes a good point there. I, I think that this actually will tie Trump's hands a bit at the Manhattan DA's trial because Why? if they were planning on calling Alan Weisselberg to say, for example, Donald Trump had nothing to do with the way these hush money payments were logged. It was me, the CFO, and it was Michael Cohen, their star witness. He can't do that now. He's neutralized now. Because so he could deny Trump a potentially helpful witness. Exactly. It takes Alan Weisselberg off the table as a potential defense witness. Like I said before, you're not calling him as a prosecutor. The guy's going to have at least one conviction and probably two for perjury if he takes this plea. But it also means he can't come in as some sort of surprise witness to try to tank the case in Trump's favor. Yeah, it's remarkable. We'll see what happens here, Ellie Honig, and to everyone here tonight, thank you for joining us on that breaking news. Ahead, we also witnessed historic testimony of a different kind today. The mother of the Michigan school shooter, Ethan Crumbly, she took the stand in her own defense. Prosecutors trying to hold her accountable for her son's murders. Also tonight, we have a one-on-one -on -one interview with United Auto Workers President Sean Fain. He spent the day with President Biden and has some key words uh, about what his union's endorsement could mean and what any other endorse and unions considering backing Trump, what it could mean for them. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. For the first time since the murders of four students at Oxford High School in 2021, 
the deadliest school shooting, I should note, in Michigan's history. We just heard directly from the mother of their killer at a historic manslaughter trial that is underway right now. This is 45-year-old Jennifer Crumbly. She took the stand today in her own defense. It's a first-of-its-kind case. It could set a precedent for whether parents can be found criminally culpable for their children's crimes. Ethan Crumbly was 15 at the time of the attack. He was sentenced last year to life in prison without parole. He was tried as an adult, I should note. But the prosecution is arguing that his mother and his father, James Crumbly, who will also soon be tried as well, are also responsible for the murders that happened that day. Jennifer Crumbly is accused of gross negligence, including for failing to get her son the mental health treatment that he needed, despite many warning signs, warning signs that she argued today she didn't see. That includes disturbing texts that were sent by her son, journal entries, violent drawings as well. Some of those were shown in court today, including one where Ethan Crumbly had written, I'm quoting from it now, I have zero help for my mental problems and it's causing me to shoot up a school. Another chilling one that said, I want help, but my parents won't listen to me. Prosecutors offered evidence which they argue shows that she did know about what her son planned to do. This is what she said when she was being questioned, I should note, by her own attorney. Are you a failure as a parent? I don't think I'm a failure as a parent, but at that time, um, I guess I didn't see... I felt bad that Ethan was sad at those things, and I guess I just, I don't know, I just felt like I failed somewhere. You knew or had reason to know your son was a danger to anyone else? No. Um, as a parent, you spend your whole your whole life trying to protect your, your child from other dangers. Um, you never You never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. Not a failure and no signs of danger, she insists. Listen to her answer when she was asked, though. Does she wish that she had done anything differently? No, I don't. I mean, I, of course, I look back after this all happened, and um, I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. A remarkable moment only on day one of her on the stand. Joining me here tonight, criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor Mark Amara and attorney and legal affairs commentator Ariva Martin. Thank you both for being here. I'm so glad to have both of your, your legal minds on this. Uh, Ariva, when you listened to Jennifer Crumbly, as her attorneys were asking her these questions today, talking about her, her parenting and that day, do you think it helped her case from what you heard? Yeah, I don't think that statement where she said she wouldn't have done anything differently helped her at all. She spent most of the time on the witness stand today trying to explain why the jurors shouldn't believe the literal interpretation of those text messages, those very damning text messages, uh, particularly as it relates to the text messages about uh, her son uh, seeing uh, people in their home or perhaps hallucinating. Uh, she tried to give this story that, you know, they played some game in the house about ghosts uh, and that this was all a part of a larger prank. Uh, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for the jurors to accept that this mother who, uh, according to the prosecutor, spent more time 
interested with horses or spending more time on her horses than she did with her child. Now, obviously, bad parenting isn't a crime, but when you look at the warning signs that were there, the flashing warning signs and the lack of response from this parent, I think jurors are going to have to grapple with her testimony. And they may determine that she didn't do everything she could to prevent these horrific uh, murders from happening. Well, Mark, to pick up on that, I mean, where is the line of, of bad parenting and negligence? So we're about to find out with the verge in this case, because we know it's on a spectrum, right? Uh, if you didn't spend all the time in homework and your child's not getting A's, is that bad parenting? No. If you're not doing everything for football, bad parenting? No. But somewhere along the spectrum, when those signs of danger show up, mental health concerns that are there, uh, the ignorance of some of these texts that she had to be aware of, even some of that which came out in the evidence that support the idea that she knew or should have known better, at some point it starts leading towards the end of the spectrum that the state has to get this jury to, and that is that awful will, the willful blindness, the, um, the true lack of caring about what was going on. And I think she helped herself a bit with that, um, in this case, the first hour was spent upon humanizing her and the relationship with her son. That was all great. But the defense, I don't think they did a great enough job for her to ex acknowledge what she did wrong. And I will tell you, in my opinion, the answer to that mm -hmm. question should have been, I would have done anything different, knowing now what the result was, rather than this sort of defense of herself that I did everything I sh think I should have done. And Ariva, the other thing that she did say was she kept going back to her husband, seeming to, to pin blame on him. They're having separate trials. You know, at one moment she was asked about, you know, just the gun itself. Who handled the gun itself? And this is what she told the court. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Okay, explain why you say he's responsible for that role. Um, I just didn't feel comfortable being in charge of that. It was more his thing, so I let him handle that. Do you think that's a strategy, Ariva? No, I think that's a very damning response. And picking up on what Mark said, this mother wants you to believe that everybody but her is responsible. It's the husband's fault. It's the school's fault. And if you're not comfortable with guns as a parent, why are guns in your home? You can't abdicate your responsibility as a mother to the father. She had an equal responsibility to make sure that her son did not have access to a gun. And some of her testimony uh, throughout the day was she didn't know where the gun was. She didn't know where the lock to the cable was. She talked about it being in a beer stein, maybe in the kitchen. She wasn't sure. And I, I know jurors are sitting there thinking, you have a 15-year-old that bought a gun that you and your husband bought a gun for for Christmas. Now, you may not have walked into that store, but as the parent, you are equally responsible. Well, and it just all comes down to not just what happened before that day, Mark, but also that day in the meeting with the school counselor that happened the morning of the shooting where she was contradicting uh, the prosecution and how they framed this, which is that uh, essentially she just kind of downplayed it more than, you know, the emphasis that they've put on it. But how does a jury see that, that there is a meeting with the parents, with a school counselor over concerns, over a drawing from the from the 15 year old at the time? No question. Half of those jurors or more are parents, and they know that you have to be aware and looking for those nuances of how your child is doing. So when she walks into a meeting 
and is shown that type of evidence, that type of information, the idea that she wouldn't have done anything other than take care of the child is sort of unbelievable. The idea that she had to go back to work or she downplayed it, or I know he's depressed, but I don't think he was just, it was just him acting out. Right now, that jury's gonna, jury's gonna go back in that room and say, is she a grossly negligent parent? And I think most of what she was doing today and the lack of acceptance of responsibility is sort of feeding in to the prosecution case. And we're gonna hear about that in closing argument and we're really gonna hear about it in her cross-examination tomorrow. Yeah, and that starts tomorrow. We'll obviously be watching it closely. I know you too as well, Mark Amara, Riva Martin. Thank you both for joining tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. Up next, President Biden returned to a state that was critical to his 2020 win, but he is now facing backlash from Michigan's Arab American voters as he's courting big labor unions. We'll be joined by the head of the United Auto Workers, who has endorsed him and was with him right there today. Sean Fain is next. President Biden addressing the surging violence against Palestinians in the West Bank with a new executive order that he issued today, imposing sanctions on four Israeli settlers accused of assaulting Palestinian civilians who live there. For years, Palestinian West Bank residents have faced violence from these Israeli settlers, but it's hit record levels since the October 7th Hamas terror attack. This order today comes as President Biden was on his way to Michigan, home, I should note, to the nation's largest concentration of Arab and Muslim Americans, many of whom are furious and threatening to withhold their support come November over the approach that President Biden has taken to the war in Gaza. CNN's chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zeleny, joins me now. And Jeff, you've been in Michigan, where Biden was today, meeting with auto workers, I should note, but you've been talking to voters. What did they say about his visit? Well, Caitlin, the president's visit clearly was uh, a bit of safe harbor, going to that UAW hall in Warren, Michigan, surrounding himself with people who are already supporters. But the concern here for many Democrats and, frankly, some supporters of the president is uh, what is he doing to try and win over those who are concerned and, frankly, not supporters now? So what the president did not do here today, as he spent several hours on the ground here, was try and neutralize any of the anger and real uh, distrust and discontent in the Arab American community here, which is so uh, significant to his coalition that he won with. But uh, we spent some time talking to a variety of voters, including someone who worked for President Biden last time. He was a field organizer in his campaign. Now he's campaigning against President Biden. They're telling us that as Arab Americans, as Muslim Americans, as minority communities who are not supporting Biden, that we are the reason that we are going to get another four years of Donald Trump. But the reality is Joe Biden is the reason that we're going to get another four years of Donald Trump. There's nothing that President Biden or the administration could do at this point to change your mind. There's nothing. Uh, it's 30,000 lives too late. And we do know that White House officials in the coming weeks are expected to come and meet here with some Arab American and Muslim leaders here in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, but that did not happen today with the president. He signed that executive order, the first step, I'm told, in trying to uh, neutralize some of this anger. But, Caitlin, the geography of this visit today so interesting. The president chose to go to Macomb County, just north of Detroit. Uh, of course, that is the home of the Reagan Democrats, where so many working class voters uh, became Republicans. Now they are Trump voters as well here. So the president stayed there in much safer terrain. Of course, between now and November, he'll have to campaign in other places, perhaps in hostile ones as well. Caitlin. Key votes that he will need. Jeff Zeleny on the ground in Michigan. Thank you for that.
And joining me now is the United Auto Workers president, Sean Fain. And it's great to have you here, Mr. Fain. You said recently that you believed a majority of your members would not actually end up voting for President Biden in November. What does that breakdown actually look like? And what are you hearing from these members? Um, you know, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Caitlin. And, uh, you know, uh, look, I'm very confident an overwhelming majority of our members will vote for President Biden in the upcoming election. Um, you know, with uh, especially just given the stark contrast, I mean, the one thing we've done uh, throughout my presidency is we deal with facts. And, and with our contract campaign in the big three, with that fight, with the strikes, you know, we put the facts out there. And when you look at the facts in this presidential election with the two leading candidates, you couldn't have a more stark contrast. I mean, you have President Biden, who has a lifetime of, of serving others and standing with workers and with the working class. And you have President Trump, who has a lifetime of serving himself and standing against everything the working class is for. Uh, he serves the billionaire class. And uh, so it, it's a, you know, when you look at the track record of the two and the body of work they've done, particularly with with auto uh, in particular, uh, it, it's it's a simple uh, decision for us on where, okay. we, where we think we should go. So you actually think it's the reverse. You think a majority will vote for for President Biden, not for Trump, if he's the nominee. Yeah. Oh, yes. No. Yeah. By far, okay. uh, majority will vote for President Biden. Uh, that actually, when I was interviewing the other day, I, it was uh, you know when I'm going back and forth, it was a uh, it was. A misstatement. Okay. But, uh, okay. No, that's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got you to clarify that because I do, I do think that's really important. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking to these workers all the time. You were in Michigan with President Biden today. One thing I, I noticed, obviously, is a former White House reporter, you know, the White House and the campaign kept the specific details of where President Biden was going in Michigan private. As you know, he's been encountering a lot of protests when he is out on the road over his stance in the Israel-Hamas war. You've called for a ceasefire did you and President Biden talk about that today? What'd you say to him? Um, no, I've always we we've spoken to the White House and uh, talked about you know our position and that we you know we we feel there needs to be a lot more work done there and uh, um, you know look the UAW has always stood for peace and uh, we've called for a ceasefire. We're going to keep pushing and uh, you know I believe that they'll 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 do the right thing and um, and uh, you know and I believe Michigan will deliver for President Biden. Uh, you know we can't afford to go backwards and. Uh, uh, a Trump presidency would be a disaster. By right thing, do you mean call for a ceasefire? Well, I mean, I th yes, obviously more action needs to be <laughs> needs to happen there. So, uh, 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 what's happening over there is it's just wrong. Uh, this is about humanity, and uh, uh, you know, uh, innocent people are being killed, women, children, and uh, it's senseless, and there's no excuse for it. So. You mentioned former President Trump, and he has not been happy since you endorsed President Biden. He's been blasting you and criticizing you. Uh, he just met with Teamsters, which is obviously one of the biggest unions. It represents truck drivers, pilots, others. The question is, who will Sean O'Brien from Teamsters endorse? And as he's weighing that, you know, I, I wonder what it would say to you if he does endorse Trump and what it would say for the labor movement overall. Um, I... I am not going to try to answer for Sean O'Brien, but I would 100% bet that uh, I, I can't see any way in hell uh, a union would endorse Donald Trump for president. The man stands against everything that working class people stand for, that organized labor stands for. Um, 
you know, I, I, look, they chose to entertain visiting with candidates, and that's a path they chose. I mean, we did, I, I saw no point in it because I look at the track record of Donald Trump. I mean, his two favorite words are, you're fired. Um, he's the boss. He represents the billionaire class. Uh, that's his base. Um, and so when you look at the two candidates on our end, uh, you know, Joe Biden has a history of betting on the American worker, standing with the American worker, just as he did in our in our strike this year. Uh, when Donald Trump was president, GM was on strike for 40 days. Donald Trump was AWOL. He never said a word, never did a thing. Um, when it came to saving communities, Donald Trump didn't do a thing to help Lordstown Assembly back when that plant closed in Ohio in 19 when Trump was president. But you look at President Biden, he stood with us over in Belvedere, Illinois this year. We we took one plant that was going to close. Now we have two plants going to be built there. And on top of that, we saved a community. So the contrast couldn't be any more different between these two. And uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to organized labor, I can't fathom any union would ever stand for Donald Trump. Yeah, Trump, I remember when he told people to to keep their homes, not to sell them. Sean Fain, yeah, it is always, it's great to have you here. And thank you for joining us on The Source. Oh, thank you. Up next, the latest from the 2024 campaign trail. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Nikki Haley is going after former President Donald Trump, tying his legal troubles to his campaign cash. A lot of it, $50 million to be exact, according to records from the FEC, has not actually been spent on campaigning at all. Get ready to spend more campaign dollars on legal fees because those court cases have just started. He's got two in March and they go out for the rest of the year. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. Here tonight, Republican strategist and pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Also joining me, Democratic strategist and advisor to the Biden 2020 campaign, Alencia Johnson. Great to have both of you. Kristen, I'll start with you because I wonder what you make of this new tactic from Haley going after Trump in his court cases, but, but doing it so by arguing about how he's using fundraiser dollars on his legal fees. I imagine that that comment she made about the fact that, well, he's not doing rallies because he's spending all his money on legal fees has got to get under his skin because he is somebody who is known for always trying to say, I'm the richest guy around. I'm the one that's got all the resources. And she's trying to continue to prosecute this case around electability. Unfortunately for Haley, this has not really worked in the Republican primary so far. Donald Trump continues to win a majority of voters, including in her home state of South Carolina. And so while I think personally she's right that Donald Trump is a risky proposition in a general election, in part because of his legal peril, um, Republican voters have been a little bit more immune to that argument thus far. Well, I'm glad you brought up what she keeps uh, saying, this electability argument, which is her essentially arguing she could beat Biden and, and Donald Trump can't. And Alencia, when you look at New seat in polling uh, that came out just today. It shows a lead for Haley if she was the Republican nominee. New matchup. 
She beat Biden 52 to 39, but Trump is 49 to 45, obviously a lot closer. Why is that an argument that isn't necessarily resonating with voters? Well, it's because of this voting base, the MAGA Republican voting base. There's this cult of personality. They love Donald Trump. They believe what he says. And it's interesting, as we were talking about the money piece, right, he's using his campaign funds that is overwhelmingly raised by these small dollar donors that he's constantly talking to and saying, I'm fighting for you. And so Nikki Haley is trying to break all of that apart and tell them the truth about who this man is and that he is using them. But she can't seem to break through because they hear his rhetoric. They believe it, right? There's going to be studies and studies after this, after the Republican Party hopefully dumps Donald Trump. But until then, it's at the, they're at the behalf of the voters who continue to say that they want Donald Trump and they don't like when people, whether Democrats or Republicans, go against him. Well, the other numbers, Kristen, that I was looking at in the FEC reports is how much money Nikki Haley has, because obviously that is the lifeblood of any campaign. Most people who drop out of races, it's because they run out of money. But but what we saw from yesterday's report is that she still has $14.6 million uh, available to her. I mean, what does that say to you about even if the polling numbers aren't there, the financial numbers are, does how much longer does she stay in, do you believe? Certainly. Well, and look, even though she is not winning a majority of Republican voters in Iowa, in New Hampshire, unlikely in South Carolina, she's still pulling in, you know, arguably four in 10 Republicans. And so by staying in the race, even though I think the odds that she actually becomes the Republican nominee are almost zero, she's allowing that 40 or so percent of the party that does not want Donald Trump to keep having a voice, to keep making their voice heard, and to make a statement, hey, Republican Party, you need us just as much as anything else. We'll have to leave it there. Christian Soltis-Anderson, Alicia, Alicia Johnson, great to have you both here tonight on The Source. Coming up also, there's an apology today from the defense secretary. Many questions still remain, though, about what Lloyd Austin did not say. We'll tell you what he did right after this. With American forces under attack in the Middle East, the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, held his first news conference since being secretly hospitalized for prostate cancer and complications from it a month ago. Austin apologized to reporters in the room today for keeping the country and the commander-in-chief in the dark about his condition for days. I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. Alston said that he acted out of a desire for privacy, that he was shaken by his diagnosis. I should note there were questions, though, today that he did not answer. One of those was whether or not his top deputy, the one who was technically in charge of the Pentagon while he was under anesthesia, knew about it. I think uh, in terms of what she knew and didn't know, I think we should probably let the, that uh, come out of the review. I'm joined tonight by someone who has held that same job, former Defense Secretary under former President Trump, Mark Esper. And Secretary Esper, it is great to have you because you know what it's like to be at that lectern. I wonder if you're satisfied with what you heard from Secretary Austin today. Well, good evening, Caitlin. Uh, look, first of all, he did the right thing by coming out and acknowledging that he had made 
some errors in judgment on how it was handled. And, uh, and he took full responsibility for it, which is what we'd expect of him to do. Um, and, and so that was good to see that. Uh, however, there were and remain a lot of unanswered questions, questions that he was asked today, tough ones by some members of the press that, um, that he didn't fully answer. And there are more to follow. Uh, you know, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, Mike Rogers, has initiated an in inquiry a couple weeks ago, and he has promised to, uh, to invite uh, Secretary Austin to come to the Hill to testify. So uh, this isn't going away anytime soon. And I think in front of the committee, a lot or some of those questions that were raised today by the press those threads will be pulled pretty long by uh, by members of Congress. What kind of questions are those? Because, I mean, a lot of this, the controversy ha had to deal with the fact that so many people didn't know that, that he was even in the hospital. Yeah, I think it begins with, you know, some would argue he had three opportunities to notify the president and his staff, and he didn't. The first was the diagnosis. The second was going in for the procedure. And then the third was the, the rushing to the uh, intensive care unit. Uh, in, in early January. So that's number one. I think number two then will be, you know, what authorities were transferred, who knew, who, who knew they were transferred, who, who knew they were transferred, and were they told of his condition? Because when authorities are transferred, it matters whether or not, uh, you, you know, the person, the Secretary of Defense is in for a two-hour procedure or is in an intensive care unit for three days. It, it, uh, it colors how one might decide to uh, execute that authority. But in, and in the case of Secretary, Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks, Arguably, it would have prompted her to come immediately back to Washington, D.C. to be at the Pentagon, where you have all the uh, resources available to you. You have the full staff available as well. So to me, those are some of the principal questions that are out there. You know, the other one that was asked today and that he addressed uh, pretty straightforwardly was, um, you know, did he order anybody on his staff not to tell the, the White House, the president, et cetera? And he said, no, he never gave any orders along those lines. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, that he was asked about naturally – Part of why there was so much, so many headlines about this is given what's going on in the Middle East. And right now, you know, the president said the other day that he had decided how to respond after U.S. forces were killed by that deadly drone attack in Jordan. And today, Austin said this of the Iranian proxies. He said, quote, they have a lot of capability. I have a lot more. He didn't telegraph uh, what the White House is going to do. But I wonder what you think the window for a response looks like here, given, you know, now we're at Thursday night, these attacks happened on Sunday. Yes, first of all, on the first part, you're right. I mean, uh, United States forces were engaged in active combat operations. So that raises that question as well, once again, about the chain of command. Uh, did it remain unbroken during his absence? And, and those will be the key questions, I think, that the House and others will get to. Keep in mind, there's an internal uh, inquiry as well ongoing at the Pentagon. Look, on the broader issue, and he, got, he took a number of questions today about this as well, is the response to, this, uh, to, to the killing of American soldiers uh, mm -hmm. on Sunday uh, in Jordan. Uh, very tragic, of course. Uh, look, I, I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. It tells me that maybe um, the Pentagon is maneuvering forces in place uh, to either conduct or sustain offensive operations. Uh, having been in that position, I know that's what I had to do and had done. And, um, and, and so I think once those things are in place, the commanders are briefed, maybe there's some coordination with allies. Um, then I think the, um, the campaign, if you will, will begin. And I think uh, what they're talking about in terms of multi-tier, they're talking about striking, I, I assume, the proxy groups responsible. And the number one designee right now seems to be Khatib Hezbollah, but also Iranian uh, uh, facilities and Iranian personnel, which I've been arguing for the last four or five days, that you have to hit them 
you have to have a really tough yeah. response. And look, we could see already through the media, uh, through uh, senior Iranian officials, that they're already backing off a little bit. Uh, they, they're saying they don't want war. They're changing their their strategy. They've gone to actually a commander, a Quds Force commander, went to uh, meet with leaders of Khatib Hezbollah, told them to back off. They subsequently made yeah. a statement that they were going to do the same. So there's a lot going on here. And it's look, it's good to see that it looks like we are having a deterrent effect so far. The proof will be in the pudding, the scale, scope, and impact of the attacks, these strikes. And then we'll go from there and see whether we can sustain the deterrence. Secretary Mark Esper, we will see. Thank you very much for joining tonight. Back with more news in just a moment. Tonight, Republicans are demanding punishments that can't happen for words that a member of Congress didn't actually say. I'm talking about Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who recently addressed supporters in Minneapolis. She was speaking Somali. The topic was a controversial port deal that would give a breakaway region of northern Somalia access to the sea. An ambassador from that breakaway region posted a version of her comments online. The translation on the clip claimed that she said this, the U.S. government will only do what Somalians in the U.S. tell them to do. They will do what we want and nothing else. They must follow our orders, and that is how we will safeguard the interest of Somalia. Now, CNN translated her speech. Here's what she actually said. Quote, the United States government would do what we tell them to do. We need to have confidence as Somali people. We live in this country. This is the country that we pay taxes in. This is the country where a girl was born from you all who is sitting in Congress. Republicans shared the first version and have all but ignored the second one, the accurate one. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is demanding that Omar be kicked out of Congress, lose her American citizenship, and be deported. Congressman Tom Immer calling for an ethics investigation into the comments. And Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a resolution today calling for Omar to be censured. Representative Omar has revealed herself to be a foreign agent acting on behalf of a foreign government. There is no evidence that Congresswoman Omar has done anything of the sort, and you can't deport a U.S. citizen, I should note. Omar says that she believes these attacks are rooted in Islamophobia. And as for that resolution, she told CNN, quote, I hope she finds peace in her mind. That's insane. Truly insane. Thank you all for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.